Attenzione Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now I do it on this podcast for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore a story from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. Under note, we speak with a man whose restaurant became an unofficial community center and how former customers and are helping him with a second chance. And finally, we will dive into why a four-day work week might become the new norm within the next five years. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I got to tell you, I've been back from vacation now, uh, second week here, and I got, I've got what I've determined as um, return, a vacation return depression some kind of of kind of just funk that I'm in because I really enjoyed being on holiday. <laughs> and when I came back, um, you know, it's the same stuff I left is still here. Surprise, surprise. Uh, not that I have a horrible life. I got a great life. I'm very blessed. Thank you. And um, I, I, I have uh, wonderful things going on in my life and wonderful people in my life. But being on holidays, man, it's just a different frame of mind. And as I'm getting older, <clears throat> I'm enjoying it a lot more, right? So, you know, I kind of miss it thinking about what the next the adventure is going to be for me and my partner, uh, Pumpkin, my wife, actually. Uh, so we're talking about places to go, thinking about places to go. And I've been spending a lot of time, you know, looking at, you know, things online and opportunities for vacations and places that we might go that might be really cool. Um, cool as in lots of fun, but not so cool as in temperature. Because what we're talking about here in this in this first segment, now this first uh, chat here, is we're talking about the world is scorching, right? Where there's places that you'd go to on holiday. And for many people, they're finding those places too hot like hotter than they expected. And, you know, I don't know how you feel where you live. I, I live in Ontario. I live uh, just a little bit north of Toronto. Um, and when it's hot, it's hot. You know, even there were days when my wife and I were out uh, west a couple of weeks ago when we were out west uh, doing our west coast uh, trip from uh, Calgary. We ended up in Vancouver all the way through all the other places you know, uh, Lake Louise and, and, uh, we went to Kelowna, we went to Hope BC, we went to Banff, uh, we went to Victoria, we went, you know, stopped at a bunch of little towns along the way. Uh, but there were a couple of days where it was just hot, like almost too hot to move around. And that's, what's happening in the world. People are trying to find places where they can go on vacation and ways to function when they're on vacation. And it's like extremely hot. I got a bunch of my friends that are going to Europe this summer, have been to Europe this summer. And according to the World Meteorological Association or organization, um, destinations in Europe, such as parts of Greece and Spain, uh, Sicily, Southern Italy, uh, experience the peak of their heat waves with temperatures they haven't seen in like 50 years. So people are trying to adapt, but when you get to certain places in the world, things like air conditioning, for example, aren't available everywhere unless you're, you know, staying in very expensive hotels and, and, and facilities and lodging facilities, you know, things like simple air conditioning may not be so readily available. So what do you do? I mean, how, how do you plan for this? I mean, you, you and your you and your best friend, you and your loved one, and you and your family have decided this is the summer you're going to go to 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 Europe, or this is the summer time of the year that you're going to go to places in the U.S. And, and you get there, and they're so hot, and the water that you go into these days to try to cool off, like the lakes, parts of the ocean, parts of the sea, you know, rivers. Some places in the country, some places in North America, some places in the world, those temperatures in those waterways, in those bodies of water, I'm told, are like a, a like a hot tub. So you're not getting that refreshing kind of, you know, kind of uh, cooling off experience that you would hope to get when you jump in the lake or you jump in the river or so on, right? Um, even children playing in a in a fountain. They saw. I'm looking at a picture here uh, of a heat wave in uh, Athens. And there were children playing in the fountain, and the temperature in the fountain was above Fahrenheit, like above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It was so hot that the parents had to be concerned about the welfare of the kids. It reached 111 degrees Fahrenheit in that part of the country, 
on that particular day. That was towards the end of uh, end of last week, I believe. Currently, the hottest destination in Europe, by the way, is Italy. If you're thinking of going to Europe or you're planning to go to Europe and Italy is the place you're going to go. 46.3 degrees in uh, Sicily. And um, it's uh, pretty hot. 44 degrees in Spain. Like That's hot, man. 44 degrees Celsius we're talking about, of course. Uh, the hottest part of Spain right now is 45.4 degrees Celsius. So if you're planning a holiday, you really want to think about where you're going and you know what, you're, what, what the plan is for the trip. So, for example, if you're going someplace that's experiencing you know, really warm temperatures, it's going to make it much more difficult to get around and, and, uh, and do your sightseeing and so on, right? So the bottom line is you have to have a proper, you, sh you should be somewhere if you can that's got at least a pool, right? Uh, and uh, some good air conditioning, so a fan, fan system at least. Um, listen to what Marty Firestone says. He's a, an expert on travel. Um, Leo? The bottom line is people have to hope they have a pool and they hope they have a hotel with a good air conditioning. Putting that aside, people are changing their patterns. They're going to go in the fall and the winter now some of these hot spots and avoid the hot summer months. So that could be a new wave of way people are traveling. So, I mean, there's an option for you, right? According to Marty, you change your, your, your seasonal travel from, you know, summertime when places may be just too hot to a month or two later. It might be difficult for you. I know a lot of people are, you know, for example, they're are teachers and have uh, kind of more seasonal work. They're able to take the summers. So there are places to go, right? There's, uh, there are places to go where you can experience um, cooler temperatures. But by the way, if you're away and how do you cope in the heat, you want to make sure you're drinking water. You don't leave anybody in a hot car. You keep yourself cool, find air conditioning, plan ahead, right? Make sure you have the right clothing and check in on others that are with you. And look at other places in the world that you can go to inside of Canada, outside of Canada, where uh, the temperatures are uh, maybe more favorable for you and your loved ones. All right, when we come back from break here in just a minute, we're going to talk about this really cool restaurant in Scarborough in Toronto, outside of Toronto in Ontario where the whole community got together to make sure these, this place uh, could survive and, um, and bounce back. We're going to talk to the owner about uh, the uh, recovery, if you will, after the pandemic. A really cool story about a whole bunch of people at their best. Um, so stick to, stay tuned for that. And if we're getting back to you know the whole story of going to warm places, you know, just anticipate that it's going to be hotter than you expect. Take layers of clothing so that you can get down to lightweight clothing if you need to pretty quickly. Lots and lots of fluids. Lots and lots and lots of fluids. George Mahales, uh, he has one gar garage that fits a car, some tires. Uh, his daughter's wedding cake uh, base and half of his restaurant because he had to close his restaurant, the real McCoy in 2022, but he vowed to return to Scarborough, which is a community um, east of Toronto uh, here in Ontario. He didn't know where or when, but um, he knew that at some point in time he was going to open up. So he kept some of his favorite condiment bowls and stainless steel milkshake machine and what he calls a bunomatic coffee maker. I don't think they even make them anymore, but apparently George has one. Uh, and, you know, he really was destined to figure out a way to come back. And when it was forced to close, he uh, uh, it struck a nerve with his daughter. And, um, you know, like all good children trying to help their father, she posted some news on social media in mid-November of uh, 2022. And thousands of Scarborough kids, by the way, had grown up eating his burgers and pizzas and fries. It was where people went in the community for comfort food. You know, the photos on the walls were always the same. Um, they, they, they closed just before Christmas. And, you know, it was a wonderful place. It would, they, they, they closed just before Christmas and people were looking, you know, prior to that, it was a place everyone go to and hang out. And he had customers of all kinds, right, that were, had an interest in, in, uh, in being there. And people would just, it was just like the place where people would come and gather for a milkshake for something to eat. Um, and there's around the, not far from there, there's a, a company called Power Staffing Solutions. Uh, and in that company, uh, there's a wall. Uh, when you walk in, there's a mural at reception, like the Where's Waldo of the Scarborough um community and, and iconic uh, images and there's the you know you can see the water tower the scarborough uh, rail system um, and then you see the original storefront of what was the real mccoy 
where George Mahale uh, saw. And um, anyway, the fellow who uh, say who was um, uh, one of the principals there in uh, power staffing, they all got, decided to get together. The three of them sat down one day, uh, him and uh, a, a, another person. We'll let George tell the story because he's my guest. He's standing by right now. But the three of them got together, figured out a way to open the place and um and have a listen, but have a listen quickly here with some of what the customers, some of the customers were saying to George to show support for the reopening. Have a, have a quick listen here. Gentlemen. What's going on? Oh, are you? Good, buddy. What's we'll see you when you're open. God bless. Thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Thank you. You know, we really miss the real Mackay. Thank you so much, the my brother. The real deal. That's it, baby. See? Thank you. We're now joined by the real McCoy, George Mahal. George, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It was a story that really struck me. And uh, when I shared it with the producer, I said, like, here's some people really at their best, which is kind of what we do here on the show, uh, trying to profile people at their best and sometimes people not so much. Um, tell me, give me a give me a little background here on kind of how how you got into the business, um, what caused you to shut it down and then how you how you rebirthed it. Well, getting to the into the business it was a family business opened up by my father in 1969 with two other partners, with his father-in-law and his brother-in-law. Um, they were in. My dad had come to the Canada in 1958, and as a new immigrant, um, didn't know the language, didn't know anything, so got himself a labor job in restaurants, in restaurants working with other family members who were here prior. Um, learned quickly how to do everything and decided to open up his own business. So in 1969, the three got together and opened up the Real McCoy. Um, after about 10 years, uh, my, my grandfather, he retired, and there were two partners left. Um, right. Then business got a little bit stagnant after that for a little while and stuff, um, and I bought into the, into the ownership, uh, bought ownership into the restaurant in 1986 with my father and decided that uh, that was the right thing to do because I had grown up in the business anyways as a, as a teenager, working there after school and on weekends in the summertime. And... We started from there. I mean, my father decided that, yeah, we can, we can make a good go of this. It had a good rep- the restaurant was a good, had a good reputation already. And uh, we went off with, with him there. I was a young man. I was just pre- previously married the year before. And it was a big change for me, too. But um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, but it was a lot of fun also. The only job you ever had? Um, no. I had a few a few other uh, part-time jobs in in and out and stuff but um that was probably my, that was my first real job I had let's just say hard work though isn't it i mean let's running a restaurant is uh, takes long hours and a lot of a lot of grind i mean i'm sure it's very satisfying but um did your father persuade you or dissuade you from joining i he didn't dissuade me but um he kind of made it up to my own decision because he knew that he knew what i would be getting into because he knew what the mm-hmm. work and every every parent wants something better for their child. Exactly. Every parent wants something better for their child and stuff. But um, I decided, no, Pops, I go, this is the right thing to do. We're going to try to build it up and try to make a go of this. And uh, and we did. And thank God. But it is a lot of hard work. And so it's it just not greeting customers and here we go and talking talking sports and, and whatnot and about the weather. And there's there's a lot behind the scenes with ordering, with staffing, with equipment, with with everything and stuff with the all business aspects of it with all small businesses and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I have a bit of an advantage. My son is a, is a chef, and uh, and uh, I know what goes on in trying to keep uh, the location that he works at going, so I hear all his complaints. <laughs> so I'm just wondering to myself. You know, is that a lot. The, yeah, I'm thinking, is that the best thing that my kid can do? But he loves it, so uh, he's very happy. So it became like a community center, according to the to the report, according to the article. Um, describe that a little bit. What, what, what does that mean? Like uh, people would come and just hang out, or what did was, that feel it's like? A, it's in a small little strip. It's in a small little strip plaza. Well, it was in a small little strip plaza uh, at Markham and Markham River Morton, just south of Ellesmere. Yeah. Um, there's a community center across the street, the Centennial Arena, about a block and a half away. Um, our restaurant, what it was, is it had easy access for parking. So um, our mothers would come with, and the, if they see the kids in the car from the windows and stuff, they felt comfortable coming in. But our restaurant was a community, almost like a community center, like a drop-in center. Right. Um, it was a safe place for the kids. If anybody, all the schools knew, and a lot of the parents, because it was, if I wasn't there, my father was there, and everybody didn't know what it was. If anybody bothers you from school, like if you're being bullied, or if anybody you don't like, the way somebody's looking at you, you feel afraid. Just run into the restaurant, run into the McCoy, you're going to know that someone's going to be there. 
my father would have been there, or my wife or my mother when, when she worked a little bit there. And it, it was one of those kind of places that it was like a safe spot. We would have um, widows and widowers coming in. Uh, they were, for many, for many years, they were our customers. But then when one would pass or something, we, we had so many of them just coming for a cup of coffee. And even if they, they didn't want a hamburger or a slice or something, they would just sit around and just talk. We never had seats in the restaurant. It was only a takeout restaurant also. But they, we had a nice oh. counter, and they would, sit in the, they would stand by the counter and you know, have a cup of coffee, read the newspaper and stuff, talk, and talk about this and this and that and whatever, and it made them feel good. And we always did. It was one of those kind of places if you didn't have enough money to, for, your, for your meal, if that wasn't a real big, big issue with us and stuff like that. We never let anybody go hungry, that was for sure, especially kids. The kids were the soft spot. Um, the neighborhood changed dramatically over the years. Sorry? I'm talking with uh, George Mahill, who is um, the owner of um, the Real McCoy here in Toronto in the area called Scarborough, talking about uh, how he kind of went from having to close a place down to bouncing back. And uh, it's a result of him and a couple of uh, people that got involved with him. Uh, George, uh, thanks for being here with us and uh, being part of the show. Um, give me an idea how this thing closed down um, and what, what led to that. And then real quick, how the how your two buddies kind of got involved in helping you bounce back. Well, we were, we knew the uh, the plaza was going to go down eventually because of uh, the gentrification of the neighborhood with uh, the new buildings. And it was a, uh, early June. I got a I got a letter from the landlords saying that we had to vacate by December 30th. Mm-hmm. And that was a um, we we expected a few more years out of it because I still had years on my lease. So mm-hmm. we still expected that we have some time left, right? But it came up a little bit quicker. So after I got the letter, four days later, we had a wedding for my daughter. So I didn't say anything to anybody until afterwards that guys were going to be on. We got to close the restaurant down in six months. So me and my wife pretty well said, "Okay, we're going to do what we have to do for the next six months, and uh, then we'll see. We'll circle the wagons and see what we're going to do as a family afterwards." Because um, I just, I mean, it, it, it kind of got to me stuff, right? Because it was a part of my life since I was a little, little boy. But since uh, I was seven years old, my father opened it. So right. whatever happened, we went along with what we had to do, and you know, it was about early November. My daughter was saying, "Dad, we gotta we gotta post something." Because she was my, my youngest daughter, Megan, ran my social right. media, right. and she posted in sec, I think the second week of November that Real McCoy is going to be closing. Come get your last stuff, guys. It was, uh, we're it. That's it. And people just flocked. It was it was unbelievable. The outpouring of support, the stories, um, all these little stories that came through that. What people were saying, they goes, I, I didn't think people paid attention to what we were doing a lot of times. We just right. did it because that's what we did. And there were so many heartwarming stories that, oh, my God, I remember that. At the moment, <laughs> you're not thinking you're doing anything, really. You're just trying to right. be nice right. and try to be a good uh, a good neighbor and a, uh, a good citizen and stuff. But, and the sale program was just un- unbelievable. And it came time yeah. those, with, with um, the gentleman we were talking about, those. They contacted my daughter and said it was the restaurant and the legacy should not be should not can't go away. We've done too much for the community with, with sponsorships and and uh, support for the breakfast lunches and whatever else you've done. You just can't let this go. We can't let this go. Whatever help you need, I'm going to be there. And, it was, and that came from Sai Suka Kumar from Power Employment, and he was a young gentleman who grew up in the neighborhood and was a customer of mine yeah. since he was uh, eight nine years old. Yeah. And then the other gentleman, uh, Brett Punchard. Yeah. He's been telling me to do something with the restaurant for the last 25 years. And I never listened to him. I just, here, take your Banco Burger and get out of here. Stop bugging me. And he he's like, <laughs> actually was a really good friend, but he was really breaking my chops for forever. But right. Sai and Brett know each other. They know each other so what did, you, what, did you, what did you need from them, George? I mean, you didn't have a, pl- did, you didn't have a place to go. Was it a, was, I mean, frankly, was it a money thing or was it just, you know, like, what did, what did they provide that you needed in order to reopen? To be honest with you, it goes, oh, like I said, it goes, I took it pretty hard and stuff. Goes, and what what they provided actually was some moral support and, and um, yeah. a light at the end of the tunnel for me. Like I do, could I have done it myself? Of course, I could have done it myself. I, I, but I was going to take some time off because because of the situation. So I was tired and mm-hmm. take some time off. And I even told somebody, my wife, I go, maybe I'll go work somewhere else or I'll open up a restaurant. Maybe in six months or a year, we'll find something. I'll open up a smaller restaurant to get us through up until retirement to retirement age. But when I when I went, I just said, and, and Brett also said in January, please just come to my office and let's just talk. Let's just talk. And 
when I went and, and I saw the passion that both both gentlemen had about for the restaurant, and they kind of cleared my head in the, in many in many in a lot of areas. I was saying, listen, you okay? You are the McCoy, but we can help you from we in other ways. And so I wasn't doing it alone. Of course, I had my family with my family support and everything. That was one thing, but right. having someone with, with two gentlemen like that behind, um, maybe we can bring it to another level. Okay, this restaurant did one. We did one thing with this restaurant on Markham Road, and now I, I, I stated prior prior to through newspapers and on TV that if I open up another restaurant, it will be in Scarborough, and then that's we, we are first one was definitely going to be Scarborough, but I, I would like the other people to have that opportunity to have a restaurant like mine, kind of, kind of buy in and stuff, and be a neighborhood type of place that people can go to and feel good and just be around the stuff and then that's the kind of idea we had so what's the new iteration what does what's the new iteration look like george versus like what the old one was like you have this This is the new version going to sit down and so on there's going to be a couple seats so i i I will have a few seats inside only eight or ten seats we're going to have and stuff not too many uh, this one is it's a a larger pad of course the other one had a full basement so we don't have a basement so so i have to really refigure how my working spaces are for this restaurant um, right. It's got much more exposure. It's on, it's on two main roads. Much more exposure and stuff. But it's going to be it's modernized. There will be some of the old feel of it with the, with some of the wood and stuff, and, and some of my memorabilia, the fishes on the wall that everybody knows about, and a lot yeah. of the spo- sponsorship pictures and plaques and stuff. We're going to put that up. But I still want to have that that neighborhood feeling of a restaurant. I don't want to be like a cookie cutter restaurant type of thing that really flashy colors this and, and where you can find anywhere so if i still want to be like the real mccoy how we had it i still want to be like a fail like a neighborhood place where, where's okay. the new location george if people are coming to toronto or if i want to come have a great cup of coffee where am i going uh well from my bun coffee maker that is it is fabulous coffee no matter what my <laughs> wife says but it's, it's a, at the corner of bellamy and lawrence uh sure. in scarborough yeah 3300 my father used to have a business called Bud's World of Furniture on Kennedy Road next to Bad Boy. You were probably too young, but your dad would know it. I, uh, so I know I, where the Bad Boy I, is, but Bud's World of Furniture, no. I'm Bud's sorry. World, just up the street. Yeah. Uh, my father was famous for keeping the place open all night and serving coffee and donuts for anybody that wanted to walk in the door. So you can imagine <laughs> you the go. kind of cust- you can imagine the customers he had at three o'clock in the morning. George, this is a really great story. Um, and you talk about the first one being opened in Scarborough. Sounds to me like you've got re- you're kind of regenerated, like you're rejuvenated, and uh, these guys have put sort of some some new energy in you, such that sounds like you might have some expansion in mind. That. Um... If I listen to those two, yes. <laughs> and that, you know, if I listen to those two gentlemen, yes. Um, they have rejuvenated me. They have, honestly. Um, uh, they kind of lit a fire underneath me and stuff. Because I, sure. I was tired from the other one. And sure. it, it, was an emotion, it was a very emotional close. Um, it, it was hard. So who in your family now is still involved with you, George? In the restaurant? Yeah. Uh, my wife. My wife and uh, my daughter was doing the social media. But she's yep. a very busy young lady. Um, she's an RT who, who works downtown and stuff. She's a respiratory therapist at Toronto General and right. works crazy hours. So she was doing all my, my social media with uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram. And 2 o'clock in the morning, people are texting her, oh, why is this and why is that? She was, and so she would take care of that. Now I have someone else doing that because um, they, would allow, they won't allow me to do it apparently. Amazing. We're talking yeah. to George Mihail. He's the uh, principal, one of the three partners at the new Real McCoy corner of Bellamy and Lawrence here in Toronto, the east end of Toronto, Scarborough. If you come to Toronto, you got to get out there. I'm told it's the best cup of coffee in the city. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to make my way out there as well. Uh, George, real quick. Um, what's, what's your, what was your, what is, or what is the, your favorite part of coming to work every day? Honestly, just, it's just meeting all the people and talking to all the people. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It might sound cliche and stuff, but I really do enjoy that. It's the banter that goes on. Um, if you see any any pictures and stuff, because I always have a Boston Bruin hat. I've always yeah. worn one. I've always been a fan of the Bruins and stuff. And what it <laughs> did, it just brought fodder to the, everybody else because everyone's a Leaf fan. Sure. And, and it's it's just so much fun going back and forth. And they all know it's all in good fun. It's all in good fun and stuff. But I get ribbed all the time, and I'll throw it back. And it, it's... it's um, I don't know. It, it is fun going to work. It is hard work. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I'm in there four or five o'clock every morning, sure. and I don't open up till ten. So just to try to get it, because we prepare everything fresh on on site and everything's done. 
So it is it is a lot of work, but with the customers that we get and the people we get, it's it it's it's really nice. Um, there we have a lot of new customers, but a lot of old old customers come through, and it's through generations. Uh, they're generational, and it's that's amazing. It is. I'm talking it's, to George. I'm talking to George Mihail, owner of uh, The Real McCord. Thank you, George, so much for being on with us. Um, I'll, let, I'll let you know I, who I am when I walk in the door uh, and shake your, shake your hand in person. But uh, congratulations to you, Brett, and Say, and to your family. And we wish you well and great, great success. Uh, George Mihail, The Real McCoy in Scarborough, Bellamy and Lawrence. Check them out. Thank it's a so must. Much. Thanks, buddy. My pleasure. Thank Thanks for having take me. Care. Thank you. Bye-bye. What we're talking about, is it okay to not pay your rent? Well, we've had a bunch of text messages come in over the last little bit. People saying things like, if you don't pay your rent, what happens if you get thrown out, then you're going to be homeless. That's not okay. You might be get evicted. Who knows, right? Uh, other people are saying not paying the rent isn't a good idea. Yeah, if it was me, I would hold back my rent, but I'd be afraid my landlord would kick me out. Everybody's concerned. want to hear from you. What do you think? Is it okay? To not pay your rent if you feel like you're getting ripped off? Well, Beverly Henry, she pays 900 bucks a month. She lives in Toronto here. And when she was first moved into her one-bedroom apartment nearly a decade ago, that's how much she was paying. Now she's paying close to $1,300 a month. She's a senior. She lives on a pension. And she doesn't think she's going to be able to live there much longer if they keep increasing her rent. So like many other people, she's holding back portions of her rent uh, to try to make a stand. Standing up for themselves, like the Marley song says, and making you know, getting getting uh, getting no getting noticed, if you will, by the landlord. And the idea is that you know people are having to decide now, right? So people are deciding. Uh, many people I talk to have to you know have to decide. They'll tell me, Yona, I have to decide if I'm going to pay my rent or buy food, or pay my rent or buy medication, or sometimes pay my rent or clothes, winter clothing. I. I had a situation with somebody this this winter that couldn't afford winter clothing because their their cost of living was so high. And there's a number of people at a building here in Toronto on 33 King Street. And there are the tenants of the several buildings, actually. There's another one on 22 John Street, also in Toronto. And they're holding back uh, portions of their rent, if not all of their rent. And although at landlords are allowed to increase uh, their their rents so much each year, if, in fact, they put in uh, renovations or upgrades or whatever, they can increase it even more. And many landlords who are taking over buildings, buying buildings, let's say, in the last couple of years, are doing what they can to get past the, uh, the, 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 the tenants that are in there with protected rents. So if you can get a tenant that's been in there like this woman, uh, Miss Henry, if you can get her out of there, and say that you're renovating or you need the space or you increase the rent that she can't afford, you can bring somebody in at a much higher rent, right? So um, the owners of the building have, have you know, they're, they're, there's a concern about uh, using renos and work that the landlords say we're done. But she says, over the last five years, I've seen my rent increase three times higher than rent control. It's a, it's a tactic that her landlord has used every year to avoid following rent control by suggesting that there's small renovations. That's why they're striking. Well, the company that uh, rents the space, Dream Unlimited, which owns the 33 King Street building, uh, they said they inherited a dispute between the striking tenants and the previous landlord when they bought the building in 2021. Okay, so so what? <laughs> you bought the building in 2021. You knew what the you know what whatever encumbrances were going to be there, right? Well, there's over 300 residents in Toronto right now that are refusing to pay rent since their landlords have been raising rent well above the 2.5% limit, which is what you're allowed to do. It's the 2.5% limit. So um, that you're allowed to increase by that much, right? So um, landlords are, are work, trying to get around that. They're doing these workarounds to try to figure out a way to, to get around that, right? So um, there's about 300 of these people, and the landlords did, did receive permission to increase rents higher, some as much as 12% uh, from the landlord and tenant uh, review folks in Toronto uh, because of renovations and so on, like we keep saying. So who's right? The renters who are increasingly being priced out of their homes who have lived there for years, or the landlords who are increasing rent to make ends meet? Is it simply a case of greedy landlords, or are these residents out of line 
for refusing to pay. What do you think? Give me a call, 877-399-9898. One will give you a chance to share what you think is going on, right? Do you think it's okay to hold back your rent or are you be afraid to do so? I don't know. I, I, I think these people need to stand up. Well, Dream Unlimited's um, uh, president, Michael Cooper, uh, who apparently is a really decent guy, by the way, um, and chief responsible officer. The company is willing to negotiate significant discounts and create an extended payment plan for the tenants who need to support. So the idea is if one person doesn't pay their rent, the chances are they're going to get thrown out. But if suddenly 30 or 40 or 50 people in your building of 100 aren't paying their rent, it's definitely going to have an impact on the corporation's cash flow, not to mention their profitability. So um, it's a good way to get, I guess, to get the attention. I'm not suggesting you do it or not do it, um, but certainly getting the attention of the folks at Dream Unlimited. Um, and she said, he, he says, we're accommodating and supporting our tenants the best we can to resolve these. Uh, he's noted that 12% of the tenants at 33 King Street are now on a rental strike. They also own the same building on 20, another building on 22 John Street, where 15% of the tenants haven't paid rent, some of them back as far as April. Well, this guy, Anthony, he lives at, tw at 22 John Street. He didn't know the building was subject to any kind of provincial guidelines, but the price, the rental increases are ridiculous. So he just, he's paying 2.5% more this year than he did last year. He's taking it upon himself to pay the rental increase that he thought was legitimate based on the 2.5% number that the government allows landlords to increase their rent by, unless they have extraordinary circumstances like renovations, improvements, things like that, changing uh, changing the mechanical systems, you know, major investments. Okay, so they're able to raise it a little bit. But understand that landlords aren't in the business of being loyal to tenants. They're in the business of generating revenue especially big companies like Dream Unlimited, which is part of, you know, they have many, many, many buildings, right? And now in Canada, by the way, by the way, the average asking price for a rental unit in Canada, I believe this is one bedroom, one bath. Who knows the size? It's hard to know. Canada, it reached $2,042 last month. The average asking rental price in Canada, a couple of grand a month. It's, that's real money. Like that's real money. You know, I have kids that rent and it took us for, you know, we helped them to the best of our ability to help them find suitable places because, you know, while they were working and, you know, we were able to, to source some some opportunities for them to find decent rental places. That's what, you know, parents do to help where we can, right? And, you know, it's hard to find something in Toronto, a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment under $2,500. Like, seriously. I mean, there are many apartments. There are basement apartments. There are one-room apartments. but for a couple that, you know, are young and want to feel somewhat motivated when they come home, uh, you know, if you want to live in a fairly new building, it's 2500 bucks and then some. So it's a big deal these days. And a lot of people are experiencing rental burnout. Like they just, they just can't pay anymore. I mean, some people are complaining about that too with the more flexible mortgage rates for a long, long time that uh, it was hard to, you know, find a mortgage rate that you could, that you could afford. But we're talking about rental here, and we're talking about people who feel that they can take it upon themselves to take a stand, right? To take a stand. So I want to know how you feel about that. We have uh, Don from Edmonton. Hey, Don, how you doing? Good, and you? I'm good, buddy. Thanks um, for calling. So what do you think? Yeah, it, it goes back to government mismanagement. Like, the carbon tax just compounds everything. We already have enough problems. It's the worst time to raise it, raise raise the interest rate it's the worst time to put the carbon tax on other you think china's using the carbon tax no they're not the thing is all these costs have to be passed on and the, what happens everything goes up the food the energy like even in alberta here we had uh, we had two coal-fired plants they had just invested two billion dollars in them now we said, oh, they're not going to be carbon neutral by 2030. Well, they have a 10-year life expectancy. So now that $2 billion is coming home to roost. Plus, they have to pay $180 million a year. for this. So I can't remember until 2032 or something. But now we're paying $0.32 cents a kilowatt hour. We used wow. to be 5 or 6 like so, like so your, do you think it's so? So I don't mean to cut you off here, Don, but do you think it's okay to hold back your rent? No, I think it's a bad idea. I think I would try to negotiate with the landlord, but realistically, because then they just have a reason to evict you. 
I've been landlord for quite a while and I've had people not pay rent, but no, I wouldn't, I don't think it's a good idea. There's got to be a better system, but we know our government's not going to step up to the plate and do anything. Tell me things that the government's done right in the last, in the last few years. If you're a millennial and a Gen Zer, you're thinking about the future, they don't really think about it so positively anymore, right? They're just not seeing it that way. They're, they're just not seeing the opportunity um, for uh, people to make a life for themselves, for them to be able to buy a house, for them to ever be able to enjoy uh, the benefits of um of uh, you know, whole, of of business ownership, um, you know, retirement, all that stuff. They don't see it, and 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 for many people, their concern is more around things like global warming and the climate and what we're doing with our economy and healthcare and all that stuff. And they're just not motivated to save, right? So what we're they are there's nearly half of the millennials and Gen Zs that are not planning retirement as because issues like climate change seems to threaten their future. And that's according to a study from an organization called Fidelity Investments. Um, they just don't see a future. They just don't see a future. 45% of young people between the ages of 18 and 35 say they no longer see the point in saving for retirement until things somehow return to normal. That's according to recent data from this Fidelity Investments 2022 State of Retirement Planning Study. So the, to this group, retirement seems like a very, very long way away. According to Rita Asaf, she is the vice president of retirement at Fidelity. And uh, it's important to look at the big picture and realize that one of the most important things you can do is start saving for retirement. So they're an investment company. Their idea is to help you figure out ways to save for your future. So I wonder, will we get to retirement when half of the world has melted and half of our savings are worthless? According to some people who have been asked. Um, it's really hard to look at the newspaper and not feel pessimistic, some say. And for me, it's important to keep in mind that every generation has concerns and threats about the sense of security. But young generations before us, including my generation and my parents' generation, things like saving for the future, saving for a uh, quote-unquote rainy day, um, that was just something was built into us. We just started saving when we were young. But in general, younger generations are much more sensitive to climate issues, according to the PAW research, uh, Pew Research Study. Uh, Gen Zs and millennials are more likely to express intense emotional reactions, reactions to seeing climate change content on social platforms compared to older generations. Well, that translates into a number, right? So that number uh, is 69% of, of Gen Zers and 59% of millennials, give or take, uh, close enough, 60-odd uh, percent. Um, of social media users say it made them feel anxious about the future the last time they saw content on social media about addressing climate change. And for older generations, Gen X and baby booners, it's about 41%. So we're still affected, right? But when it comes to actual actions, the younger generations are more motivated to learn more about climate change and such. And 54% of the Gen Zers and 53% of millennials uh, and they are so, the, the social media users in particular say they're much more interested in learning about issues compared with 45% of Gen X, or 40, excuse me, 43% of Gen X and 39% of baby boomers. So it's, it's an issue, right? Because they're, they're finding that, um, you know, the, the, we, we did a story here earlier about rent, right? So if millennials are feeling pressure of high inflation, it's, it's impossible for them to ever think that they can save to buy something when they can hardly afford to pay the rent. And, you know, if you look at somebody, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I was making, you know, 25 or $30,000 a year, just trying to get by. And I used to say to myself, man, if I was ever making 50 grand, uh, I'd be set, right? I'd be all I need to, I could save for retirement. But then you get to 50. And then at that point, you know, your expenses are higher, you're living differently and, you know, and, and onwards and onwards and onwards. And you get, you know, so nowadays to really live, a couple needs about 150 grand between the two of them. Well, that's hard to get in today's uh, average uh, day, you know, average wage income. So they don't really feel like there's a there's an opportunity to save. Well, according to the experts, the trick is to start saving when you're young, putting a little bit of money away each year, so much a month, right? It seems to be the way to go. 
So the average price, by the way, of a house in Canada in February of this past year, uh, in uh, 2023, $662,000 for the average home. And that's definitely not in any major markets like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. Maybe Montreal, because the numbers are a little lower there. Homeownership also gives retirees some level of flexibility, right? So the older ones, older folks that have homeownership, you know, have a much better chance of what, what retirement might look like for them. But for young people, according to the Mercer Canada report, um, the data and the analytics from um, from their proprietary, da proprietary database at Mercer, the report assumes that millennials start saving for retirement at the age of 25 with a starting salary of 60000 So if you're making $60,000 at age 25 and you contribute 10% every year through a workplace savings program that invests in some kind of fund, uh, that you might have a chance towards some level of home ownership. So the average income for those aged between 25 and 35 today is about 44000 So they're running behind, right? A lot of debt. A lot of debt. RRSPs seem to be a way to go. Listen, I'm not a financial advisor. That's not the nature of this, this conversation here right now. But what I'm really talking about is how young people just don't feel like there's anything worth saving for. Like they're, they're not sure, the A, the world's going to be alive. Well, you know, if you're not that, you know, kind of in that negative a place and, you, you know, you, you don't feel so, so you know, uh, so lost in terms of the future, right? then, you know, you have something to save and look towards. But if you don't feel like there's going to be a future, what are you saving for? You know, a lot of people say to me, I have nothing to save for. I'm going to live for today. And you can't argue with that. But if you're looking for home ownership, you need to start saving now. If you're a young person and if you're an older person and you're trying to figure out a way to save for ownership, might be uh, maybe not in, your, in, your, in, your, uh, in the calling for you and maybe work past that. You know, maybe just be satisfied with renting a place that's comfortable and that works for you and saving your money if you don't feel like, you know, jumping into homeownership. Because for a lot of people, that's really scary. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of savings. And then once you put enough money down on a place that you can afford, you got to carry that place. You got to pay the bills, right? The heating, the hydro, uh, any any other maintenance costs, you know, all that kind of stuff. Taxes, right? People don't put, and if you buy a condo, you got to pay condo fees. People forget about condo fees. Sometimes condo fees can be as much as the rent, as much as your, your mortgage payment, right? Can be as much as $1,100, $1,200, $1,300 a month, $800 a month, based on the size of the place that you rent or the size of the place that you buy, excuse me. So ownership in a condo comes with, you know, co-op dollars and so on. And that, you know, that can add another, as much as another thousand bucks as much or so, right? So start looking at that. Once you save for an, enough money to buy a place, it's just not enough. So people are feeling like they're just not in a place where they feel comfortable that working really, really hard and saving all their money to, to finally one day, right, be able to afford a place. It's just not, doesn't seem to be happening. They kind of look at, you know, when you talk about homeownership, you know, with my kids, they kind of look at me going, well, Hope, hope you're going to have a lot of money, Dad, because it's going to be difficult for us to save that kind of money. So we're, especially now, we're talking about, a, when we come back from break here, we're going to talk with an expert about a four-day work week. So not only is it hard to save money, but we want to put in less hours or less days at least to try to make that money. I don't know. The world seems to be a bit upside down when it comes to employment and money and savings and buying assets and so on. So... what we're talking about right now is moving to a four-day work week, the concept of moving, moving to a four-day work week. There were 41 companies tested on uh, the results of the four-day four work week, and every single one of them had 100% satisfaction rate when they looked at the test results. In other words, it seemed to work out really well for them and for their employers. For the employees, excuse me. The trial of the four-day work week was led by an organization here in uh, Toronto, the Time Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. Um, Joe O'Connor is the person who headed that up, and um, they talk about. Uh, he said he created the first four-day work week pilot program in Ireland in 2021, along with Side Boston College and the not-for-profit advocacy group Four Day Week Global. So it's. It's unbelievable that the success that they see in reducing to a four-day work week, right? Um, 
they saw 41% of the 40 companies participate saw a combined revenue increase of 15%. Employees, um, uh, the data showed worker burnout uh, reduced by 17%. Physical health improved by 12%. Uh, satisfaction of employees was up by 16%. Work-life balance seemed to jump to 35%. It's just all the numbers are through the roof in terms of uh, satisfaction. Sociology professor Scott Scheinman. Uh, listen, he talks briefly here about the pros and cons of a four-day work week. Have a listen. No, it does sound a bit too good to be true. That being said, you know, if you can take 40 hours of work and compress it into 32 hours um, and still remain competitive and, you know, it does look like at least some of the initial indicators, I mean, it might be too early to tell, but some of the initial indicators of employee satisfaction and uh, morale certainly you know it goes up i mean if you think about it it's about a 20 percent pay raise i believe that would be so you know who it's almost like who's who's not going to be happy Okay, so I uh, didn't even look at the 20% uh, pay increase, but uh, interesting uh, a way to look at it. Mike Schechtman, he's the Senior Regional Director at Robert Half, um, and they're an organization based out of Vancouver, and he's my guest uh, this evening. Mike, thanks for being here with me, man. Appreciate it. Hi, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on with you. So four-day work week, I know from this broadcaster's perspective, I would love to have a four-day work week. I'm just trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with the work that I'm going to leave behind that I do in the other two days of my six-day work week. How does this work, man? It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. We actually conducted, uh, and Robert Half conducted a, a survey, uh, and it outlined, and some of the data that came out of it um, certainly shared some of the um, some of the commonalities that um, you, you just mentioned. Uh, people are looking to uh, have a better work-life balance, uh, work-life integration, talking about uh, reducing that burnout, increasing morale and productivity. Uh, and 91% of the senior managers in Canada would actually support a four-day work week for their teams. Real quick, give me an idea what Robert Half does and how you're in the middle of this kind of stuff. Yeah, so Robert Half is a global management consultant. We work with a number of uh, clients uh, right across the globe when it comes to recruiting, recruiting top professionals across uh, multiple specialized roles. Uh, so we have a really uh, clear understanding of what organizations are looking from a workforce uh, planning. And uh, certainly at top of mind is, is getting an understanding of what employees are looking for. Uh, so it's, uh, it is fascinating to see uh, through the pandemic, uh, how organizations have evolved and, and priorities have shifted for a lot of individuals in terms of what they're looking for as well. So a lot of companies that uh, that I hear about, and certainly the few that I do coaching with, um, seem to have a problem getting people back to the office, period, uh, whether yeah. it's three days a week, two days a week, four days a week. Um, is the idea that you'll come back to the office four days a week, or does this play out in the virtual world as well? I think it's first of all, it's it's early uh, in in the in the process. Uh, you know, we've seen a few pilots uh, take place um, globally just around the four day work week. Uh, the idea is to still have a four day work week even in a hybrid model. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean even with a compressed work model that it would be a reduced hours. Uh, there's there just even based on the survey alone. Uh, you know, seven out of 10 Canadians actually mentioned that they would actually put in a 10 hour work, uh, work day uh, in exchange for an additional day off just to extend that weekend. Yeah, so that's the part that you kind of you kind of lost me on a little bit on the on the clip that we heard coming out of uh, coming out of the opening here with uh, uh, who was that clip from uh, sociology professor Scott Scheinman yeah. talked about the pros and cons. He was saying you know you know thirty thirty two hour week means you know a twenty percent increase in 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 salary. Um, I it make it would make more sense to me and, and correct me if I'm wrong that you try to stick with the ten hour a day four days a week. Um, so do you do that at Robert Half? Are you a four-day week operator right now? We we are not. Uh, we are not, and uh, again, uh, there there uh, are not. Um, I would say this is more an exception versus the rule. Uh, you know, it's certainly gaining momentum, uh, but we we have not seen an organization fully take on this uh, this type of model. Uh, you know, the, I think a lot of organizations at the moment uh, that are looking at this are still researching 
trying to get input from specific stakeholders, uh, making sure that there's a lot uh, with any sort of such paradigm shift, um, you, you need to have a lot of things in place uh, from a change management perspective. So uh, it will take time before this um, this this happens. Uh, I will say that um, you know nearly, I believe it was 69% actually anticipated that their company will actually transition uh, to this type of model within five years. So it is gaining a little momentum, but there's still a lot more questions to be answered before uh, any. Um, material shift will be across uh, across the country. Nick Sheckman, he's the Senior Regional Director at Robert Half, a really cool management company based out of Vancouver. Mike, thanks for sticking around. So who benefits, employees or employers? There's a correlation between the two. Uh, ultimately, employees feeling that um, they're going to be benefiting from this just by uh, that uh, ability to integrate their work life, their ability to uh, get that additional day off to uh, reduce that burnout. And ultimately, uh, employers, uh, when you have a more productive workforce, um, you get more out of them. And ultimately, this is where uh, the early findings were, even that survey that you mentioned um, and the research that you saw that revenue increased by about 15%. Uh, if people are happy, it um, it reduces uh, it reduces turnover. And, and again, those are the positives for, uh, for both ends of the spectrum. So uh, one of my callers, my friend Lisa, she's in Edmonton. She says the four-day work week seems to work for salaried white-collar office workers, but not so much for the hourly worker, especially those making closer to minimum wage. True or not true? I would, I would tend to, uh, to, to agree with that. Uh, there, there are some positions, uh, industries, and this is where uh, um, a one-size-fits-all scenario is going to be a, a challenge uh, for, for many industries and, and functional positions. Uh, you have to look in, and take into consideration this is where the con is for, uh, for some employers where they're not going to be pursuing this type of model because it, it will cause a rift and potentially inequality within departments. Uh, take the construction industry. It, you know, it will be very tough to say uh, to the individuals in the office where you guys um, or gals can work for four days a week uh, and people at, um, on, on site uh, will not be able to maybe take advantage of that uh, for various reasons uh, to ensure that uh, deadlines are met. So uh, it's going to be quite, uh, quite challenging for, uh, to, to, make this, uh, to make this work right across the board. Okay, so let's shift uh, shift gears here for a sec, Mike. So you and I are, I'm sure, you buy stuff, I buy stuff, we're consumers, right? We're customers. How is it going to, like, it's hard enough now for me to get the customer service I need from the companies that I do business with. Moving to a four-day work week, how does that affect the front-facing customers and clients of certain businesses? Uh, there's going to be, there could be a potential impact, and, and this is where organizations are going to have to look at uh, how scheduling is done, the logistics part of it, it will be a challenge. Uh, they may even require to bring additional resources to uh, to cover. Uh, so there, there's going to be complexity that comes with these types of uh, these types of planning, and and this is where uh, there has to be a, a, a tremendous amount of um, uh, of effort uh, put forth. Uh, as an example, if somebody's working or ex cohort of individuals in a department would work from a, a client interfacing position from Monday to Thursday, you may have to overlap and have individuals that are working from Tuesday through Friday. Uh, so there's gonna be potentially uh, less individuals working on site and this is where additional resources may be uh, required to be pulled in. Uh, so there's a lot to be thought about. Uh, this is not uh, something that will be taken lightly and this is why uh, many organizations are just looking at some of these pilots that are taking place to see if uh, if it's suitable a to their industry and and b to uh, the work model that uh, that that um, may be a fit. Uh, and then and then finally, you know, when when you're looking, does this model align with the with your enterprise philosophies? Uh, and if it doesn't, it's uh, it's, it's something that will be uh, packed on. The way, the way I the way I'm looking at it is I'm thinking to myself that by the way you're a smart guy because you're absolutely right if you maybe shift them around so some work Monday to Thursday some Tuesday to Friday I never thought about that that's why you get the big bucks and I don't but but for but it's it definitely going to take some realignment so from a company perspective I, I get the employee benefits okay. 
from a company perspective, unless it's going to make them money or save them money, are they that concerned about employee retention that it's it's something they may do, even if it doesn't make economic sense? There is that direct um, economic, uh, you know, increase when you're looking at organizations. Uh, re- retention is, is top of mind for many organizations. And if they know that they can retain staff based on this model, it's going to increase their bottom line. So they, they are looking at this from that, uh, that, that perspective uh, as well. Um, we know that happy employees are just more productive at work. Uh, and engagement is, is another really uh, hot topic for, for many leaders uh, because there's a lot of individuals that are, are still quite quitting and maybe putting the bare minimum uh, currently. Uh, and if this type of model may increase the amount of effort they're putting in on a daily basis, ultimately it will increase uh, top-line revenues for organization in terms of how much effort individuals are putting into, uh, into their work. Uh, so there are things that that, that will have to uh, take place, and and it's uh, and, and it's still uh, still a ways, as I mentioned, but uh, it's, um, it's it's something that's going to be important on a go forward basis. So after doing this study and learning the, or being in the thick of it, as you are learning as the stuff that you're learning, the data that you're complying, uh, c- compiling, um, how do you feel when you have to work more than a four day work week? You know, it's 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 interesting because because you know some individuals already feel like they're putting in uh, eight, nine, ten hours a day. Uh, yeah. I, I believe that there it's it's going to be a situation from, uh, from from my perspective that is there going to be a place for this? I, I, I do think that there are uh, some organization and industries that uh, will see this as a as a great uh, great benefit. What we do know is that the pandemic has has really realigned and reprioritize many things uh, and it made people believe that, um, you know, change is possible. Uh, we were thrusted into working from, from home uh, through March of 2020 uh, and many people didn't believe that that was a possibility at the time. So uh, I do think that this uh, type of model, uh, there is a place for it. Uh, it just needs to uh, be thought through, uh, really be thoughtful through, uh, and ensuring that uh, it, it fits. Because what you talked about in terms of uh, client uh, satisfaction and customer experience, uh, stakeholder engagement, uh, and other key factors are going to be critical if this is going to be uh, work. So uh, every stakeholder through the process will have to be uh, met in order for any uh, material uh, shift in in a work model. Talking to Mike Schechtman, Senior Regional Director at Robert Half, uh, management company based out of Vancouver. Uh, last question for you, buddy, is um, is there a reason why a company wouldn't want to adapt or adopt this kind of thinking? There's always a fear. Uh, organizations, um, you know, status quo is sometimes comfortable. Uh, and, and some organizations may see it as, if things are working for us, uh, why, why change? Uh, and I think that's always a roadblock for, uh, for some businesses and, uh, and leaders. Uh, and and there's, there is that fear where uh, if, um, if we, we do some sort of overhaul uh, and, and shift, people might leave because of that. Um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges from, um, from the employee's perspective that, that some people haven't thought about is, you know, if you're uh, making a 10-hour uh, work, uh, work day, uh, how that impact working parents, as an example, where all of a sudden you're missing even a dinner. Uh, so you're going from, uh, you know, spending maybe two hours or three hours with your, with your child to maybe an hour a day now. Yes, you're getting that extra day potentially, but they might be in school anyway. So there's just so much complexity that comes with it and any sort of complex topic um, you know, some people put that on the back burner in terms of a priority. Talking to Mike Sheckman, Senior Regional Director at Robert Half. Mike, thanks so much for being here. You're a great guest. Maybe we'll check in with you in a few months just to see how this is uh, all playing out. But I do appreciate you being here with me tonight. I appreciate the invitation.